Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. He kind of spoiled it for me because I wasn't going to say I had a series. But I have been studying a series since uh, before we came back to, to the state, so around three months. But I've been studying in Acts 14, and I've only gotten past the first three verses, or actually the first five verses, but I wanted to, I wanted to show you all a couple things out of this first verse and kind of intertwine it with the rest of it to give you a gist of the whole story. But it says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake, that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time of fellowship that we can have, that we can come into your house and serve you and worship you and to sing songs that glorify you and to hear your word, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to preach here at my home church and for the, the privilege that it is to, to be a called man of God. And I thank you that, that you bless my family and that you bless this church. I pray that you'd help us tonight, help Brother Tim Backer and Brother Tim Banks as they preach too. And bless this bless us preaching. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so like I said, I want to, I want us to go through this first verse. And the reason we only read the first verse is because this first verse kind of is, uh, the missionary's dream. And, and I've realized it's the missionary's dream from being on the field. And, and you see how it really is. And you realize what you thought it was isn't really how it is. And it says, and it talks about how they went into the synagogue and they preached and a, a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. That means that people that were religious and people that weren't believed. All a whole lot of people of all different races, of all different um, of all different backgrounds, that they got saved. They listened to the preaching and they got saved. That's a missionary's dream. But it says in verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. That happens a lot. A long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave, which gave testimony unto the word of His grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That's their persistence. And I'm glad that with, with all that goes on on the mission field and with all that we go through, God helps us and we can be persistent in the work. And I'm thankful for that. But what I want to look at tonight, I want to look at the first five words of chapter 14, and it came to pass... And I want us to look at a couple things in this and kind of intertwine it with the rest of the, with the next couple verses. And the first thing I want to look at is the word and. I want us to look at that. And what is and? And, it's a conjunction. And a conjunction combines two thoughts or two sentences into one. And so what is God trying to show us here? He's trying to show us a relationship. God's trying to show us that He has put throughout the Bible, and I didn't take time to figure out how many times and is in the Bible. But God is trying to show us a relationship, and He's trying to show us that He desires a relationship. In this, in this context, He's showing a relationship between two places. The, Paul and Barnabas, they were in Antioch, and, and they preached there for, on the first Sabbath and on the second Sabbath. And it says in verse 50 of chapter 13, But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised, up, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And so we show that, we, we see that God is showing us a relationship between, between two places here. God, God will oftentimes in our lives, He will move us, He will, He will lay things out and He'll make things work so that we can move from one place to another according to His will and that He can show us where we need to go next. I'm glad God has put some relationships about places in our lives. Secondly, there's a relationship with people. Paul and Barnabas, they had just been in Antioch, and there were disciples in Antioch, and, and they, were, they were preaching there, and they were with the, with the brethren there. But then they go to Iconium, and they're with more people. And it's not just, it's not just that they, they went there, they preached, they didn't meet anybody, they left. They met a lot of people there. It says a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. How do you think they got saved? There was, there had to be a little bit of one-on-one -on -one going on for those people to get saved. Paul and Barnabas met a lot of people in Iconium, and they met a lot of people in Antioch. I'm glad that God puts people in our lives. Glad that when I was when I was seven years old, well, actually, before I was born, God put my dad in my life, 
And then when I was seven years old, my dad preached and I got saved. And I had a godly father and a godly mother and three godly siblings to help bring me up to know God and to know how to serve God. So I'm glad God puts people in our lives. But I want to look at this relationship and apply it to everyone. First of all, I want us to look at it's a primary relationship. And I want us to turn back to the very first verse that God ever gave us in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. And I want to see that the first thing God did when He had, when He began to make man and when He set out through the course of time, He made a relationship. It says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's God made a relationship between Himself, between the heaven and what was below, between what was above and what was below. And God still wants a relationship with the earth. God still has, has formed this relationship and He's kept it going from Him to us. We are on the earth and He is in heaven and He's kept that relationship going through the saved people, through the preaching of God's Word and through, through His blessings and through everything. He's kept this relationship going. And so it's a primary relationship. It's been from the very beginning. But then it's a possible relationship. Or there's a possibility to the relationship. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 gives us, gives us the possibility of this relationship. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He's given us the ability, the, 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 privilege to call him father it says that we have um, you have the power to become the sons of God we can we can become sons of God we can be family and we can have that relationship with God and that's a great privilege to be able to actually say God is my father it's like saying it's like when you pray you can say dad you can God is your father you can talk to him personally and that's a great privilege and that's a, the possibility for every human being is to, be, is to be able to have that relationship with God. But not only is it a primary relationship, not only is it a possible relationship, but it is a permanent relationship. In John 14, I'll have to read it to, to figure out what verse it is. But John 14, no, I'm in Luke. John. John 14 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believed in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. God wants to continue that relationship for eternity. When you get saved, it's not something, it's not something that just you get saved, and then after a little while you have to get saved again. Yes, like, like the preacher said this morning, yes, after a while, God will let that zeal die down. God will let the, the fun die down to see if we're really going to serve Him. But we're still saved. And once you get saved, you're always saved. It's not going to end. But you have to get saved. And you have to, you have to trust Christ as your Savior so that you can have that relationship. Secondly, after we see the relationship, we see the reality. And in this, in this, um, in this story, the reality is, the, that they went to Iconium and it says, and it came. It didn't just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something magical that, that happened and, and they couldn't quite remember it all. This thing actually happened. They actually went to Iconium. They actually were able to preach and people were actually able to get saved. It actually happened. It wasn't, it's not just a story. A lot of times people will read stories like of Moses and of Joseph and, and the creation story and all that, and they'll read it like it's just a fairy tale. But it's not. It's real. It's real. And I know it's real because I can feel it in my heart. And I can feel it when God speaks to me and through the songs and through the sermons, I can know that all this is real and that everything that the Bible says is true and it actually happened. And this reality was not something magical that, that they couldn't remember, but they could feel it when they thought about it afterwards. They knew and they could remember every little detail. It was planned. First of all, the reality was planned. This didn't happen just by accident that they went to, that they went to Iconium. If you have, if you have a map in the back of your Bible that shows the um, journeys of Paul, go ahead and open that up. I want to look at something here real quick. A lot of times, a lot of times like when we're traveling, we'll take the interstate and we'll go and, uh, we'll go try and go straight. But if you see, in the in the trip where the, Paul and them went, and they kind of made a circle, I guess. But they went from Antioch in Pisidia, 
to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derby. But if you look, Antioch and Lystra, there's, you can make a direct line there, but Paul and Barnabas went out of their way to go to Iconium. It was planned. There was something planned there, and they knew that they had to go out of their way, out of the way from Antioch to Lystra to get to Iconium. That plan was the will of God. It was the will of God that they go there. Why? Because if they had not gone there, think of how many people would not have begun their relationship with God. They wouldn't have gotten saved. They wouldn't have had that privilege of knowing God on a personal level. And so it was planned. It was a planned, it was an alternate, it was an alternate route that God planned. But secondly, it was an amazing result. All those people got saved because God planned for them to go and to go to Iconium instead of just going straight to Lystra. If they had gone straight to Lystra, they wouldn't have made it there. Those people probably wouldn't have known anything about God. Maybe later they would have learned, but those people might have hardened their hearts after that. We don't know. But they had the privilege of, of being a part of the amazing result of salvation. And secondly, it, it was planned, but it had, it, it had a purpose. It was purposeful. It came to pass. It didn't just come and, and Brother Brian McBride once said a lot of people will interpret it and say, and it came to pass. It didn't come to stay. Well, that's not the interpretation. I'm quoting him on that. But it came for a reason. It came to pass. That's why it came. It came to happen. And so we see that what, what happened was that the place accepted. This, this place, Iconium, a lot of people there accepted. There was a great multitude that believed and they had that, they had that purpose. Paul and Barnabas, their purpose to go there was, was to preach so that people could believe. It says, and they, they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also the Greeks believed. They went and spake so that people could get saved. Their preaching wasn't so that they could look good. Their preaching wasn't so that people would hear their voice or, or tell other people about them. Their preaching was so that people would get saved. And there's a lot of preachers nowadays that just preach so that people will see them and so they can get a salary or, or so they can, they can get fame. But the real goal should be so that other people can get saved. Not only was it an accepting place, but it was an alternating place. If we look at the second verse, we already read, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, made their minds evil affected against the brethren. They, it, it changed. This place, this, this purpose also, also had a problem. They didn't, they didn't just go for people to get saved. People didn't just get saved, but it also served for them to go to another place. There was persecution which sent them immediately to Lystra. Now it does say, long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, but they went after the persecution, they went to Lystra. In verse 4 it says, But the multitude was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also the Jews when their rulers, with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, Unto the, unto the region that lieth round about. They, with this persecution, with this problem that arose, the purpose was to be fulfilled that they went to Lystra and they kept going and they kept traveling to tell other people about God. And as a, as a missionary, as a preacher and, and able to, to travel with my dad, go on different river trips and stuff. And I got to preach in the revival meeting and used to, I was preaching every Friday. I know that when you go somewhere and you preach, those people that come, are wanting to hear something, and, and they want something. And it's our job to give them something. You don't have to be a preacher. Ladies can do it. Kids can do it. They can tell anyone. It's called witnessing. You can tell any single person that you meet on a day-to-day -day basis about God. And who knows, maybe God will take you out of your way just to go somewhere. What if you have a flat tire and the guy that comes to pick you up isn't saved? Maybe God's been dealing with his heart and you need to witness to him. Don't get mad about your flat tire. Witness to the man. Maybe, maybe if you take too long in the McDonald's, in the McDonald's drive-thru and the lady's had a bad day, witness to her. Give her a track. Give her some encouragement. Maybe it'll make her day. And that's what I've had. I'm thankful for the relationship that God has given us. I'm thankful for the reality of my salvation and for the reality of my call to preach and my privilege to be able to show others the way. And I'm also thankful for the purpose that He's given me. 
to, to live and to preach so that others can be saved. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter number 23. Psalm chapter number 23. Uh, very familiar passage of Scripture. I'm just going to read one verse. Once you find your place, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. I believe in reverencing God's Word, and I want to thank the Lord for His Word and the truth that is in it, because it has helped me many a time. Psalm chapter number 23, and we'll just use verse number 3 as a springboard. It says, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for this amazing opportunity and this blessing. I don't deserve this privilege, but Lord, may I use it for Thy honor and Thy glory. Speak through me, Lord, and please use uh, the, the remaining messages tonight for thy honor and thy glory to uh, minister to the hearers. I pray, Lord, you'll work. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. I got to thinking one evening, um, uh, this verse came across my mind, and with this verse, this thought, um, that that latter statement, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And the thought came across my mind, you know, for his name's sake, um, as Brother Aaron pointed out, some English um, grammatical teaching there, um, and is a conjunction that brings things together. Well, for his name's sake is a prepositional phrase. It is, um, it is absolutely not needed for the completion of that sentence. It just gives extra, extra information. So uh, it got me to thinking, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why would the psalmist put that in there? Um, God is righteous, God is just, God is holy. We, we know that about Him. He will lead us in the paths of righteousness because that's who He is. He will not lead us contrary to what He is. But it says, for His name's sake, and that got me to thinking, you know, God cares about reputation. For His name's sake. It, he cares about having a good name. And that's what I want to preach on, the reputation of a Christian. You know, this issue of reputation, some people never actually think of it while others overthink it. You know, some people are completely obsessed with their reputation to the point that they'll go to whatever means necessary to keep that reputation respectable in the sights of others, while others could care less what people think about them. But as Christians, we should care about our reputation and what others think about us because, well, the Bible says it and God cares. And I'm going to, I'm going to pull that together. Uh, in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, I found this uh, definition really, really, um, really good. Uh, reputation is defined, according to Daniel Webster, as a good name. The credit, honor, or character which is derived from a favorable public opinion or esteem. Reputation is a valuable species of property or right which should never be violated. With the loss of reputation, a man, and especially a woman, loses most of the enjoyments of life. That's an interesting statement. The best evidence of reputation is a man's whole life. Character by report, that is reputation, in a good or bad sense as a man has a reputation of being rich or poor or of being a thief. And we'll come back to that, that definition in a minute because I want to tie it all in. But using, keeping that in mind, uh, by way of introduction, I want to point out two different types of reputation I thought that as a Christian we should be concerned with. And number one, that is, uh, the obvious one is our personal reputation. That is our reputation personally as a Christian here on this earth. You know, in Proverbs 22.1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Solomon went on to write in Ecclesiastes 7.1, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of one's birth. Ecclesiastes 10.1 also says, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor, so doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. And then Brother Paul wrote in the qualifications for a bishop um, through, through all those verses, he, he wrote, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? 
Not a novice, listen to these words, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. All that has to do with reputation. God cares that we as Christians have a good report to them that are without. Not only to them that are without, but in the church house as well. Because there are some that are not on the level that we are, that we might be as Christians. I might be a little higher than somebody else. I might be a little lower than somebody else. But if I'm looking up to somebody as a spiritual example, um, I realize that people are human, but you need to have that good reputation and a good name or else you're going to cause brethren in Christ and, and sisters in Christ to fall. So we, we must care about our personal reputation. But the, the second reputation I, I see us um, needing to care about, and this is something people never really think about. I, I'll be honest, I don't think about it as much as I should. I call this preeminent reputation. That is God's reputation. In Exodus chapter number 32, the children of Israel have come out of bondage and... Uh, and they, Moses is on the mountain. They, they've gotten tired of waiting, so they, they make the, the golden calf and they uh, start worshiping, you know, this is our God. We, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And God, God's ready to destroy them all. He, he's fed up. He's tired of it. And, and Moses, it says, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now, Moses did not, he did not connive, he did not trick, he did not tempt, he did not manipulate the Lord in any way. You cannot do that. But what he did say is, Lord, think about like the Egyptians and, and all the other nations surrounding us. What are they going to think if they see you bringing your people out with all those blessings and then you destroy them in the wilderness? God, think about your reputation. He was, he, he cared about making God look good. And as Christians, we have that duty. You know, reputation in the Christian life is not just about the Christian themselves. We think it's all about us so many times, but we gotta realize we're here to do one thing and one thing only. That's glorify God. It is most importantly about God. The sinner's view and opinion of God will only come from observation of the Christian's life. Every single individual personal reputation of the Christian makes up God's preeminent reputation. What people think of you as a Christian will be what people think of God. You've heard it said that your life may be the only Bible that some people read. Perhaps your life is the only way some people ever get to see and know of God. So my question to you is, what does your, your, your reputation say of God? So, uh, I've got three things, three very simple things um, by way of the message that our, our lives can bolster God's reputation. We can, we can have a good reputation in honor to give God a good reputation. Number one, uh, taking example from the Apostle Paul, live honest. It, it's that simple. Um, using Paul's background, he... Uh, he was born into a wealthy Jewish family. Um, he was uh, he was taught the Jewish faith and uh, the scriptures at at a very early age. He was, uh, according to his own testimony, he was born in the tribe of Benjamin, which is um, supposed to be the favored tribe of the children of Israel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is what he called himself, uh, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Um, and then he was also taught at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest scribes of that day. And according to some sources, they, they claimed that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. I can't, I can't, um, confirm that fact, but I can tell you this. If anybody knew about reputation, Paul knew about reputation. And, uh, he was, he was the one who said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. 
And then Philippians 4.9 also says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. The reason I say that is because Paul, as someone who knew about reputation, he had no problem setting himself up as an example and saying, Look, if you don't have any, any beliefs, if you don't have anybody to, to look at you know, as an example... Use me. I, he put himself up as a transparent life and said, use a magnifying glass. Uh, follow me as you follow Christ. Um, or follow me as I follow Christ. He has no problem doing that. He was honest before God and before man. And he had no problem doing that because he realized that he needed to have a good reputation. You've got a good reputation. Not only should we live honest, but we should live devoted. It was uh, it was Brother Paul who before his uh, before his salvation he uh, he had a very very uh, great devotion to the the Jewish faith and to the Pharisaical traditions um, to the point he he persecuted the church um, concerning zeal he uh, persecuted the church according to his personal testimony and he um, and he had such a devotion that. To, to, to that part of his life and to those teachings that when he actually got saved and joined the church, he had such a reputation that they didn't trust him. He had, he had such that reputation that it took him, according to the timeline, 13 years of serving in his local church, just serving before, God, um, before the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Paul, um, Barnabas and Saul um, so that he could send them out. It took him 13 years to actually build another reputation to replace the reputation he had before he was saved. Uh, but he, he was one who knew what a devoted life was before he was saved and after he was saved. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8, it says, "...but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." He goes on to write, "...that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death." He lived a... You can... You know from his name, the Apostle Paul, that he had such a reputation that he lived honestly and he lived a very devoted life to Jesus Christ our Lord. But not only should we live honest, not only should we live devoted, but we should also live humble. And this, is, this example is taken from Jesus Christ Himself. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 3-8, through "...let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God and thought it, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Had Jesus Christ not humbled himself, we would not have... Uh, salvation for uh, available to the world, we would not have the gift of eternal life. Uh, had had Jesus Christ not humbled Himself, we would not have the reputation of for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it was through Jesus Christ's humility. Um, that he humbled himself unto death, that we have that reputation of God being a loving God. Because think of it, how many people, how many sinners out there know of God? Well, I've heard that God is love. You know, everybody preaches that. We wouldn't even have that had Jesus Christ not humbled himself. Jesus Christ knew about reputation. He made himself of no reputation so God could have the reputation. And so, going back to the definition, it's honor or character which is derived from a favorable public opinion. Now remember, we're not talking about the facts of the attributes of God. God is holy. God is just. God is love. God is righteous. He is judge. And He is a very jealous God. But that, that has nothing to do with the opinion of what people actually see Him. Because the, the, the people out in the world, they don't know Him like we know Him. And they can't know Him like we know Him unless we show, him, show them who God really is. And so it's, it's derived from a favorable public opinion. It's a valuable species of property or right which should never be violated. Uh, in, the, in the qualifications for a bishop, Paul wrote, 
Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And it got me to thinking, pastors made this statement, it's not the devil's goal to kill me, but rather to get me to be a testimony against the grace of God. That's, that's all. The, the devil doesn't really care about your death. He just cares about making God look bad. And you're the easiest. A, a Christian failing in sin is the easiest way to do that. So, in closing, my question to you is, what does your reputation say about God? Go to the book of Acts, chapter 9. When Brother Aaron said turn to the book of Acts, I thought maybe he was going to preach the message that I had lined out. But uh, thankfully he did not. But uh, I started, God began dealing with me about this particular message about three weeks ago. I did not know where he was leading with, with me. And after I got finished working on it, he told me to put it on the back burner. He said, I'll give you the green light when the time is right. So when pastor asked me to preach this evening, God gave me the green light. Be Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read the first six verses here. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord... What wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious evening. Lord, just thank you for a good day of being able to rejoice unto your name. And Lord, just thank you for the good preaching that we've heard. And Lord, I just pray that you give me the wisdom and liberty to be able to preach the message that you laid upon my heart. And Lord, I just pray that someone be able to learn from this message and apply it to their lives. And Lord, just thank you for being a blessing to not only to myself, but my family and to these other preachers. And Lord, just thank you for using Pastor South in a mighty way. And Lord, I pray that you be with us throughout the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the book of Acts here, uh, what it does is ties the other books of the Bible together in the First Testament. Paul Harvey used to say that's the rest of the story. Now here, the large portion of the book of Acts is talk, is talks about Brother Paul. Now, Brother Paul, before he was saved, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a very wicked man. He hated Christians, he hated the church, and he hated Jesus Christ. And But God began dealing with him. And we see that in the first six verses here, how God began to deal with him. In the first two verses, we see that Saul of Tarsus was an enemy to Jesus Christ. But in verses 3 and 4, we see there is a time period where something changed, that all of a sudden, he got to Saul while he was on the road to Damascus. He was convicted by Jesus Christ. And then, in verse 5, we see that he was called unto Christ. And then here in verse 6, we see the surrendering to Jesus Christ. And once he surrendered, his name changed from Saul of Tarsus to Apostle Paul. And the first two things that stands out when he first surrendered, Paul asked two questions. Who art thou, Lord? That's what each and every one of us should ask. Who art thou, Lord? And the second thing he asked, Lord, what, what wilt thou have me to do? And when I first surrendered to preach, I asked God, what is it that you want me to do? And I feel like God is leading my family out west. Now, he might change his, his plans, which is fine. But right now, that's where I feel like that the Lord is leading us. And as a result, God has blessed us in many ways. 
God's will and his will alone should be the heart's desire of each and every one of us. It's not what we want to do. It's not what the world wants to do, but it's what we need to do by God's will. God's will is very important. Nothing else matters. Paul was told to go into the city, and there he would be told what to do. Now, God at this point did not hide his will for Brother Paul. Instead, he told him to go into the city, and I will tell you what to do. And so Brother Paul went there, and God did not hide his will from Brother Paul, and he will not hide it from us either. Once you do what God wants you to do, he will reveal it to you. But he will not reveal it to you if you don't pray. He will not reveal it to you if you don't stay in his word. He's not going to reveal it to you if you live like the world. He will only reveal it to you as long as you live according to his will. I like to preach on this simple thought, how to know the will of God. Now, before you can know God's will for your life, you must have an understanding of how his will operates. And there are three ways in which his will operates. First, there is God's sovereign will. This is decision of God that is always the same. It never changes. And nothing in the universe could ever change that. Second, there is God's moral will. Some things are right and some things are wrong. That never changes. No matter what the world tells us, that never, that never changes. God's will never changes. The world right now at this point in time is trying to change the Bible. They're trying to change the church. They're trying to change, you know, the genders. They're trying to change this, that, and the other. But stick with God's word. Stand behind it. That never changes. Thirdly, there's God's particular will. He has a will that is particular to each and every one of our lives. And this varies from Christian to Christian. What might be the will for my life and for my family's life may not be the same will for your life. Like for our brother Trask and his family, it's God's will for them to be in Honduras. That right now, that's not my will to go to Honduras. My will is to go to Wyoming. You know, if, if God wants us to go to Wyoming, that's where we'll go. If God wants us to go to another country, we'll be willing to go. Now watch, God will probably call us to Honduras. <laughs> now let's look at some myths concerning the will of God. The first myth is God will give you a road map. God doesn't give road maps. He builds relationships. And the only way that you can have a building relationship with God is through prayer and through his word. And also, you need to be in church every time the doors is open, if you're able to. Because how can you have a relationship with God if you're at home, sleeping in late, watching a ball game, you know, going out shopping? You know, I cannot think of any other place to be better than be right here in the house of God. And here's an example of it in Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud. And this is talking about the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt. God is with them every step of the way. By day, he's in a pillar of a cloud, and he leads them. And by night, he leads them by a pillar of fire. And he gives them light to go by both day and night. Second myth, you don't have to have a Damascus Road experience like Brother Paul. Saul's, um, Brother Paul's experience, yes, it was dramatic. And yes, it was unusual. But, you know, when I surrendered to preach, when I got saved, it, it was not dramatic. In fact, you know, when I got saved, it was in a neighbor's home as a result of a vacation Bible school. They considered themselves to be a missionary to to the neighborhood that I lived in at the time. I was only nine years old. I didn't know anything about the Bible. But by God's grace with them leading me the way, I learned about the Bible. 
And then when I surrendered to preach, you know, I was in, in the hallway of a hospital. I just learned that I lost my stepdad just two hours after witnessing to him and having dinner with him. I don't know if he ever got saved, but he told me the last words he ever said to me before he died was that, son, you'll make a great preacher. And I looked at him, I said, that's not me. I said, that's, that's not up to me, you know, that's up to God. And he never once said he was a saved man. He, he always said he was a religious man. But he said this. He said, God will use you in a mighty way. You know, two hours later, I'm in the hallway with Pastor South, and I'm telling Pastor South what God is dealing with me about. You know, some of my family members thought I was crazy. But I wasn't concerned about what my family members thought. I was concerned what God was, was dealing with me at the time. And I felt like that God, it, you know, if I hadn't told Pastor South that night how God was dealing with me, I probably never would have gotten another chance. I probably would not be here preaching tonight. The third myth is God only reveals his will to the young. He doesn't. He reveals his will, you know, to, to people of all ages. You know, I was in my 40s before I surrendered to preach. And a lot of my family members like, you know, you're too old. You should have done this when you're in your 20s. But when I was in my 20s, I was young, stupid. Now I'm old and stupid. So... <laughs> I'll probably get a lot of flack from my wife later on about that. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I ran from God. I did not want to preach, but he would not let it go. And if God was through with us, he would call us home. Well, I know God's not through with me, not yet. Why, what is he going to have me to do? I have no idea. I know it's God's will right now to be here at Pleasant View Baptist Church. I know it's God's will right now for me to be a Sunday school teacher. I know it's God's will right now for me to be a song leader. And I know it's God's will for me to be at Tabernacle Bible College. Now, the fourth myth that we're looking at is God's will is hidden from us. God never never hides his will from us. He reveals it. But if you don't pray and if you don't read your Bible, you're not going to know what his will is. He's only going to reveal it to you through his word and through prayer. Now, I want to look at two thoughts here this evening about how to know the will of God. The first point I want to bring out is God's guidance is provisional. God expects, thir- God expects certain things from us. Unless we are able to deliver these characteristics, we will remain in the dark concerning his will. The first characteristic is we have to be willing to obey him. If you're not going to be obedient to him, he's not going to use you. You know, in Sunday school this morning, I brought out to my class about how God rejected King Saul because King Saul wanted to do things his way and not God's way. And God gave him chance after chance after chance. And finally, God said, I'm through with you. Well, I want to be obedient to God. I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to do, you know, something that I want to do. You know, I want to make sure that it's God's will for us to go to Wyoming. You know, before we take off out there. It could be a few more years before we go out there. It could be tomorrow. Don't know what God has in store. But Brother Paul here wanted God's will as well. Too often we make plans and set them in motion. And once we set them in motion, we call upon God to bless them. And see, that's what that's what King Saul had done. He decided not to wait on Brother Samuel anymore. He decided to take the offering upon himself, and that made God angry. Well, here in this instance, Brother Paul wanted to make sure he did things God's way, not his way. And that's how I am. That's what I need to make sure for our family as well. To make sure what we're doing is what God wants us to do. Another point is display a spirit of meekness. You always have to be teachable. If you're not going to be teachable, 
God's not going to use you at all. You know, with me being in Bible college, I've learned things that I never thought I would have been able to learn. That's being teachable. Each one of the teachers that I have is also pastors or former pastors, and they give me advice on what I can do in the ministry, and I've taken that to heart. Pastor South has given me advice. I've taken that to heart. You know, I always want to be teachable. I always want to learn something new. It says here in Psalm 25, 9, it says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Paul displayed a teachable spirit. If you're not teachable and you think you already know it, you don't need to be in the ministry because you think you know everything. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the ministry, whether it's been a few years or if you've been in it for 50 years, there's always something that you can learn from God's Word. Always something that you can learn from God. If God is not showing you anything, then you need to examine your life. What is it that you're missing? And that's where you need to spend time in prayer with the Lord and ask Him to show you what it is that you need to to fix in your life. Add to your life or take out of your life. And also, yield to God. And we see in verses 8 and 9 here, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. As soon as Brother Paul had the word from God, he went on to Damascus. And he got busy doing what it was that God wanted him to do. He didn't question it. He just did it. If he didn't know how to do it, he figured out how to do it. Just like with me with the song leading. I didn't know anything at all when I first started doing song leading. I just did it. And God has opened up the door. And all areas of our lives needs to be open to his will. Another thing I want to point out is God's guidance is practical. God will reveal his will in ways that will be plain for you to see and to understand. And there's several ways he can do this. First of all, he does it through miracles. Normally God will not speak to a man like he did to Brother Paul. You know, through an earthquake and You know, even though Brother Paul did not see God himself, he heard his voice. The only way that we can hear God's voice is in our heart and through his word. Now, that may not be a Damascus Road experience, but that'll be our experience. Second of all, through his word, God's word holds the answers to all of life's questions. Is there, if there's something that you need to add to your life, go to God's Word and He'll reveal it to you. If there's something that you need to take out of your life, go to God's Word. He'll show it to you. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Another thing is, uh, God's guidance is practical through His people. He reveals that in Acts uh, chapter 9, verses 8 through 20. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but God used a man by the name of Ananias to speak his will to Brother Paul. So God spoke to Brother Ananias, and Ananias relayed the message to Brother Paul. Never discount the counsel of the godly people around you. You know, you can go to another Christian, you can go to your pastor, you know, you can go to anybody to get godly counsel. But first of all, I would go to Pastor South to get godly counsel. If Pastor South don't know the answer, he'll look it up through God's word and come back to you with the answer. 
God's, God's guidance is practical through His Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, it says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. We see this, the Holy Spirit is in us, in John fourteen sixteen, And we see that he will guide us into all truth, in John sixteen thirteen. And God speaks to his people through the Holy Ghost, in John 10, verses 1 through 14. In conclusion, I want to say this. God has a plan for your life. Do you know what that plan is? If not, remember to be meek. Remember to be teachable. Remember to be open. And remember to always yield to God. Listen for his voice and his word and through his prayer and through his people and through his spirit. He will reveal his will unto you. And he wants you to be in his will, and therefore he will never leave you in the dark. If you know God's will this evening, are you doing it? Are you applying it to your life? Are you making sure that you're doing what exactly God wants you to do? If you're not then you need to examine your life and ask God what it is that he wants him, what he wants you to do. And you can leave here this evening knowing what God's will is for your life. You don't have to leave the, the church this evening 